A reading from Second Chronicles. And many people came together in Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month, a very great assembly. They set to work and removed the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for burning incense they took away and threw into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month, and the priests and the Levites were ashamed, so that they consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings into the house of the Lord. They took their accustomed posts according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests threw the blood that they received from the hand of the Levites, for there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who is not clean to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the people of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with all their might to the Lord. And Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good skill in the service of the Lord. So they ate the food of the festival for seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord, the God of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed together to keep the feast for another seven days. So they kept it for another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep for offerings. And the princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep. And the priests consecrated themselves in great numbers. The whole assembly of Judah and the priests and the Levites and the whole assembly that came out of Israel and the sojourners who came out of the land of Israel, and the sojourners who lived in Judah rejoiced. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isn't that a beautiful passage? It's masterfully written. Um, you might not know this, but the, the English uh, Bible is based off of um, the Greek version of Scripture called the Septuagint. But the, the, in the Hebrew um, copy of the Old Testament, uh, Second Chronicles is the last book. It's, it's not... Malachi, it's Second Chronicles. So this, for the Hebrew mind, would be like their revelation. This would be the concluding story of the people of Israel. This is where all things are being tied up and a bow is put on top. And there's something really um, poetically uh, beautiful, and it, it kind of pulls you in in the, in the details that are shared because it's supposed to. It's designed to do that. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll get going. 
Lord Jesus, by our own doing, we are a broken and a scattered mess, much like the people of Israel and Judah in our passage today. And by your grace this morning, we plead that you would reunite us and restore us and constitute us again as your people in the world. Show us your work on our behalf this morning, the finished work of our Savior, and let our hearts rejoice. Let us remember and worship, continually worship with hearts and lives overflowing with this grace that we are awash in. Restore us and give us the strength to restore those around us. For your name's sake and the cause of the gospel, we ask. Amen. So, Second Chronicles is, if you've never read through it, it's in that part of Scripture um, uh, that records Jewish history in this cycle of, here's a bad king, look at all that goes wrong. Here's a worse king. Man, can you believe how terrible that is? Wait, here's an amazing king. Oh, he restored everything. He undid all the knots and straightened everything out. And it's hard to keep track of these various kings because they have weird names um, and weird stories, and sometimes they overlap, and so there's easy to kind of blur the lines. But there's at least four good kings that they would have us know offhand. There's David, right? He's kind of the good one ish, depending on where you slice the bologna. He's the guy, though, that everyone else gets compared to. And then you have Solomon, right? He was really, really wise-ish, except for all the ladies that he kept on the side in another big house. But he's, he's also really good. And then you have Hezekiah, who we're reading about today, and he's really good-ish, except that he is really presumptive and dies quickly, and then you have Josiah. We know, if you've been in Baptist churches at all, um, you probably know the story of King Josiah who finds the book of the law in the temple, and he's like, this book is amazing. It's so good. We should totally do some of this stuff that's in here, because it sounds fun. Those are your four good kings, okay? And every time a good king cycles back around, what they fight to restore is worship. Worship of Yahweh, the covenant God. And here are the ways that worship is, are understood in the minds of these good kings. There's the presence that they worship, the temple, God, where God dwells. They fight to restore the temple. There's the people, right? The, the first promise to Abraham is, I'll make you a great nation, Right? So there's the presence that they worship, there's the people that are gathered to worship, and then there's the land, and I will lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'll be your protection, your rear guard. I'll, I'll be the place that blesses you. So they, they fight to restore worship in these three ways, temple, people, land. That is in the, in the Hebrew mind of uh, Second Chronicles, and even long before it, that's, that's what worship was. We, we worship God in these ways, right? And the place that he's provided for us with the people he's built us into around the temple where his presence dwells. 
All that talk through the earlier books in the Old Testament about I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make of you a great nation. I will give you the land of promise flowing with milk and honey. Temple, people, land, worship. But when the original listeners would have picked this up and either read it, which would have been rare, or heard it read to them, probably more common, they were ruined. They were actually enslaved at the time that they would have come across this. The great kingdom of David had already been split into the northern realm of Israel and the smaller southern realm of Judah. Israel was larger and contained 10 of the 12 tribes. Judah was smaller and only had two tribes, but it had Jerusalem, a key city. And the northern kingdom of Israel fell in 722 B.C., to the Assyrians. And in 2 Chronicles 36, later on, which we're not going to read, you have the record of 586 BC when the southern kingdom of Judah was sacked and fell to the Babylonians. And so they're reading this national history of 2 Chronicles while they're in captivity. Now, Persia eventually took over Babylon's realm. And so they were enslaved by the Persians, not the people who captured them. But they're still a long, long way from this story. They're trying to understand sin, their own, and salvation, God's blessed mercy. And the way they understand what they're hoping and longing to be restored is temple, people, land. That's what God's people always forsake and lose, and that's what God in the flesh and the person and work of Jesus fights to restore to us. We can only understand Hezekiah, new good king Hezekiah, through the wreckage of his dad. When Hezekiah ascends the throne, he has to deal with the fallout of his dad, King Ahaz, and you can read Ahaz's account in the previous chapters, but he was a, a bad guy. He was a terrible king. He went so far as to when he lost a battle, he went into the temple, into the holy place, and he took out the gold and the silver and the precious jewels and melted down God's treasure to make a bribe for the God of the nation who beat them. And he said, look, if the God of this people can best me, well, I want this God, not my God, so I'll, I'll bribe him for his power. That, if you haven't read the Old Testament, that's generally frowned upon. It ends poorly for the people who would do such a thing. So he exchanged the God of Israel for the gods of Syria. He boarded up the temple, and that's what Hezekiah inherited if you read through maybe later this week in your personal devotional times, I, I encourage you to read chapters 29, chapter 30, and chapter 31. They tell the story of King Hezekiah, good king, cleansing the temple, cleansing the people, and cleansing the land. In fact, he's restoring worship that his dad denigrated. Everything that was sullied and ruined by Ahaz is undone and redeemed in the worship of the God of, of King Hezekiah. 
King Hezekiah says, we're going back to Yahweh and everything is restored. It's beautiful. So chapter 30, we see that the people hadn't celebrated their defining meal in maybe 16 years. They hadn't had Passover, the sacramental meal that reminds them who they are and who they belong to, whose they are. Once they were slaves in Egypt and God acted in grace and mercy to pull them out in freedom on his dime. Once they were not a people, now they were a free people. They had no strength or beauty or place to go run to and live securely. So the Lord acted. He destroys their enemy. He gives them his gracious law to reflect his beauty to the nations of the world. And he gives them a land He purchased them a home in which to settle. The Passover that they have forgotten is the defining characteristic of the whole nation. When we as the church forget to retell the story of how we were captured in God's grace, we lose our very identity. We forget who we are. There's this beautiful scene at the end of the film, Blood Diamond, one of the many movies that Leonardo DiCaprio did not get an Oscar for. And, and in this movie, in this film, this dad, um, this African dad has, has had his son taken away and fought Uh, forced to fight in the um, guerrilla army that is um, um, pillaging and raping and taking all the money and funds. And it's uh, the actor's name is Jimin Hansu, beautiful, wonderful actor. And here at the end of the film, he's standing in front of his son, his young teenage son, who's got a gun pointed at his dad. And his dad is saying to him so forcefully, I know who you are, I know your name. Your name is not what they've told you your name is. You are my child, you are my son, and I would give my life for you without thinking about it. This is what Passover does for us. For them, the Passover was the sure sign of God acting in full strength to set free his enslaved people. And now as we think into Passover, as we'll take the Lord's Supper together, it's been converted. Passover has accepted Christ and become the Eucharist. Passover is now the full promise of Christ's power alive in his people. So when we see Hezekiah take the throne, he wants to reestablish the temple, the people, and the land for God. He wants to worship. And chapter 29 is the retelling of the restoration of the temple. And 30, we have the restoration of the worship meal. But you can't just throw a last-minute Passover party like it's a Labor Day barbecue, right? You can't just hand out some flyers to your next-door neighbors and say, we're grilling brats, bring a six-pack, come hang out with us. That's not how you do Passover, The house wasn't just dirty, the whole nation was unclean. And there had to be a time of preparation and purification for the people to worship God and Passover as he commands. So here's what they did. They moved the whole thing back a month. 
In chapter 30, verse 2, which we didn't read, for the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, not the first month, in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. So they, they delayed Passover by a month. Now, that's, that's strange. It's unique. The, Moses, in um, the book of Numbers, chapter 9, um, the Lord tells Moses that Passover is so important that no one should miss it. And so, if a person accidentally becomes unclean, if a person is unavoidably out of town and can't celebrate it, and he can move it back a month, that person if that person becomes unclean, can celebrate it in the next month. Or that person who's out of town gets a pass, a, um, a mulligan, and you can come back for Passover next month. But what the king and the princes do is they say, we've all been out. We've all been unclean. We've all been insufficiently distracted with all the things of the nations around us, and we don't belong at the Lord's table. And so they say, we're all going to take another month, right? This is really um, a presumptive act of grace on Hezekiah's part to say, we have to do this if we're going to worship together. And so in this shocking moment of honest assessment, Hezekiah applies that principle to the whole of the covenant people. No one could be ready by the set time. And so when he sends the invitations out, there's an implicit call for repentance and humble preparation. Look, in fact, if you have, uh, if you just have the bulletin, you're going to struggle. But if you have the passage open... You can look um, in verse 10 at the particular addressees that are listed. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. But those people laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes had commanded by the word of the Lord. So Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, and Asher are singled out among all the tribes. These are brother tribes who had become enemies through the centuries. And they've taken their stand with the enemies of the king and in fact God's enemies. They've turned their back on the Lord and his covenant. And Hezekiah, the good king, says to them in this grace, look, we have done the same. The people of Judah have done the exact same. The people of Levi have done the same. We've taken our stand with the enemies of God. We've turned our back on the grace of the Lord. Come repent with us. Come worship with us. Come confessing with us. And come be forgiven with us. So Hezekiah's invitation is for family. It's for friends. It's for strangers. It's even for enemies. And the actual wording of the invitation is found in verses six through nine, and it's riddled with theology. So these couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, and he commanded them, saying, 
O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he's consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and they'll return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. This is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful promise. It's not simply some Evite that was sent out with the date and the time and the place. This invitation resounds with the richness of God's covenant grace for his bride. And there's a curveball in there, and I bet some of you caught it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and what would we normally think is next? The God of Jacob. But what does it say? The God of Israel. Jacob's name after he wrestles with the angel of the Lord and gets his hip touched and he's changed for life. His name is changed to Israel, the one who fights with God. And so in Hezekiah's Evite, he says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Israel. And he's saying it to the nation of Israel. This is you. This is your God. Don't forget him. Don't be like your fathers and brothers. Come with us to the Lord. Come. And multitudes do, thousands upon thousands of sons and daughters and black sheep and hateful ones and oppressed ones and broken ones and filthy ones. They respond and they flood the city. They flood the city because this is the God, the famous and mighty God, the God of Israel. You are his and he chose you. You are his and he keeps you. You are his and he fights for you to love him. You are his and though you have hated him, Still he beckons, still he holds out grace and mercy. Won't you come to the table of the Lord? And they do. And so many of them do that not even an extra month is enough. So everyone is pulling double duty. And verse 17, there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb. That's not a Levite's job, okay? In the restaurant world, you have front of house people who take the food to the table, and you have back of house people. Mitch, can I get an amen? Okay. You have back of house people who prepare the food. These are the priests. The priests are, with their sharp knives, they're slaughtering the animals. They're letting the blood out. Then they're putting it on the altar and roasting it or cooking it or boiling it in a pot. And then they're taking it out and giving it to the Levites. And the Levites say, thank you, I'll run this food for you. Here, are you the Grover family? Here's your lamb, the promise of forgiveness. Eat and know that the Lord has received your forgiveness. But there's so many people, the Levites are in the kitchen with the priests and they're killing the lambs. This is not supposed to happen. 
And people are just wandering up saying, yeah, that one's mine, the, the white lamb. Yeah, the white lamb, that one was mine. Can I have that? Thank you, please. And they're partying. It's great. It's this glorious confusion. It's chaos. And the Lord is in the presence. Many of those gathered are still coated in their sin, and they haven't purified themselves for the holy meal But good King Hezekiah couldn't bear to send them away. Look, we've waited 16 years and one month. We're doing this. Lord, would you bless this? He sees their newfound repentance and their broken hearts and their hunger to eat forgiveness. And he can't keep them away from the Lord's table despite its law and provision. But these people are not sanctified. But the Lord is. The Lord is sanctified. The Lord is set apart, and he's called them to himself. And so hear this king's prayer in verse 18 and 19. A majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. And here's Hezekiah's prayer. May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness. That is a presumptive prayer. The Lord made very clear what he expected in Passover. And so for Hezekiah to say, I know we haven't done this right, Lord. I know that we don't belong here. Would you receive us, your people, anyway? Oh, God, let your grace fall on these inadequate. Let your grace bathe the ill-prepared. Let your grace wash over and clean these filthy ones who love you. Make us clean, even though we don't deserve it. Isn't that one of the most beautiful prayers you've ever heard? I get to tell you now that this is the prayer that Jesus has never ceased to pray for his church as he sits at God's right hand interceding for his bride. He prays this prayer for us. The risen Lord has never stopped being this prayer for us. This is his continuing labor of love for his people of love. In all that we don't deserve of God's grace, we have Christ interceding on our behalf. Christ making pure our worship. We have Jesus in absolute delight before the throne of God declaring that we are his people, begging his Father in joy, in confidence to hear the plea for pardon that the King of Kings offers himself for his people. And there's a miracle detailed in verse 20. God hears Hezekiah's prayer for forgiveness and he grants healing to the people. And the effect is a party the likes of which would make any frat house at TU blush, right? I don't know if TU has a tremendous fraternity program and all that goes along with that, but I know I would put money on it that there has never been a frat party at TU that's lasted seven days, seven days, 
nonstop gourmet food, the choicest that the storehouses would afford, and drink, right, the finest wines and handcrafted micro-brews that the artisans could craft, and singing at the top of their lungs until their voices were harsh and raspy, and dancing until their legs were too wobbly and unstable to hold them, and hanging out with dignitaries, right? The princes are there. King Hezekiah, I just saw him, he walked right by, he signed my sword, it was cool. This was the kind of prayer that broken people pray while begging for grace, and the Lord hears it and responds with more grace, and the result is worship, true, fervent, passionate, and addictive worship. For an entire week, they partied like this, and then they took a vote. In a monarchy, they took a vote. That's kind of a miracle in and of itself. In this newly reestablished theocracy, the people take a vote. Hezekiah takes the microphone, and he stumbles up onto the stage, and he yells to the people, what's up, Jerusalem? Who wants to go home? No, no, we don't want... Do you like the food and wine? Yes, it's the best. This is awesome. Woo! How about we do it another week? Yeah! This is the scene. It's pandemonium and it's worship. And the Lord is beaming over his people as they're gathered in celebration to take joy in his blessing and mercy. And so for two solid weeks, an entire nation of people worshiped in party like it was 1999. What we call a two-week vacation, they called worship. And the joy is palpable. The author of this passage won't let us get away from the abounding joy and the sheer happiness and relentless celebration of the people as God's grace abounds to them. And God loves it. God eats it up. He loves the joy of his people in the forgiveness and restoration that he offers them. And so at the end of it all, the priests and the Levites lead the people in prayer and they bless them. And the text says their voice was heard and their prayer came all the way into his holy habitation in heaven. And that's the way the author tells us that the king of the universe smiled over his people worshiping him. And in verse 26, this author points backward to David and Solomon in, in verse 26 and says, this, this moment here, this two-week time frame was like that. It was like when David and Solomon consecrated the temple, when the visible sign of the Lord among his people was new and trusted, it was received and embraced by everyone. The chronicler has positioned Hezekiah in the lineage of David and Solomon, and this is as good as it gets. We've got our temple, our people, and our land, but we, the readers of 2015, know that those things are not enough. That everything perfectly settled was never enough, not for David, and not for Solomon, and not for Hezekiah, and it won't be for Josiah. David and Solomon trade the love of the Lord for the affection of women. 
It won't be enough for these other two either. In just four chapters, Hezekiah's reign comes and goes. His son ignores the Lord and the grace is forgotten and the temple, the land, and the people are flushed back into destruction and ruin. The folks in this story had not been keeping Passover. They hadn't been retelling their story. Worship, week after week, is the retelling of our story. It's reclaiming our identity and reshaping our existence. William James says in 1907, the prince of darkness may be a gentleman, as we are told he is, but whatever the God of earth and heaven is, he can surely be no gentleman. His menial services are needed in the dust of our human trials. And so, where those earlier kings could never have enough for the kingdom's worship to continue in perpetuity, Jesus is God entering our mess with his holiness. And that's the story we tell week after week. It's strange, it's unique, it's disconcerting, and we should let it be all of those things. There are strange things in the passage this morning. The delayed date of Passover is strange. The whole nation being unclean is strange. Sacrifices for unclean priests and even Levites or sacrifices by unclean priests and Levites is strange. There's the ridiculous doubling of the celebration from one week to two. Hezekiah was a good king to reframe normal for his people's worship. But Jesus is even better than King Hezekiah. Jesus fought to restore all that was lost to us. And in Jesus' perfect worship, our worship is perfectly secure. He reorients everything by becoming for us both the sin and the sacrifice. Jesus is both our exile and our Passover. Jesus is our destruction and our restoration. And so here in a theology of worship, we should remember that everything that we offer to the Lord that is acceptable is not our work. It's the work of Christ for us. And it's the work of Christ in us by the Spirit building up love, hope, joy, and desire for God pouring out. However we formulate what we think about true worship, It will unravel if we don't begin with Jesus. Our root sin, the one underneath all the others, is misplaced worship. This may be the greatest theme in all of Scripture. Our lives go astray when our hearts are misaligned. Worship is a reflection of redemption. And so if you think you can save yourself, who will you most value? Yourself. And what will happen? You'll either become an arrogant snob or you'll languish in self-pity because you'll convince yourself you are saving yourself and everyone else should save them too. Or you'll come to the realization that you can't and there's no hope and you'll fall in on yourself. Maybe you think your spouse or your kids will redeem you and then you just become insufferably clingy Can your job save you? Then you'll devote and sacrifice yourself for your job. Whatever Messiah 
you're looking for, your worship and your life is being shaped by. And when we don't believe or remember the true, full redemption that's ours in Christ, we don't quit worshiping. We just substitute other worships for true worship. And scripture's theology of worship has Jesus Christ at the beginning, at the fulcrum, and at the final aim. And if we would share and joyfully participate in the true worship of God in Christ, we need to see things about ourselves. That our songs and prayers, that our financial gifts, that this communion table, that these are sacrifices he has made and given to us that we might joyfully return them to him with thanks and praise. Our true worship is nothing but a reflection of his own. When you leave this gym, the same sacrificial worship must continue. You'll have to, this week, continually haul your desires and your heart's treasures and the way you measure yourself beneath the cross of Jesus. Your worship continues when you drag these false worships in your life to the cross of Christ. And like the priests of 2 Chronicles 30, you grab your knife and you cut them open right there and you bleed them dry and you gut them and you skin them and you burn those false worships to a crisp until they're nothing but ash. And when we walk away from the ashes of our false idols, we gain more certainty and more joy that the finished work of Christ is our only hope. Truly worshiping God is losing what doesn't matter to gain the only thing that does. There are two types of offering in this passage. There's a burnt offering, and it was completely consumed as an atonement for sin. You would put it on the altar and it wouldn't come off. It would turn to ash and fall down onto the fire itself. But Jesus is this ultimate sacrifice as atonement for sin for us. But then he turns and he strengthens us to sacrifice what false lies remain in us. And that's the story of the apostles and of Paul and the martyrs of church history and the martyrs of Trinity Presbyterian Church. In our continuing worship, we prove the God that we value above all else. And the other list of offering here is called a peace offering or a thanks offering. And that one operates like a feast. It's shared. God had a portion. The priests got some cuts. And the rest was given to the offerer to consume with family and friends in joy for the Lord's blessing. So consider again how the Lord deals with his people. They're not clean or perfect, and yet he is patient and kind. And this is what our lives, both in and out of the church, should look like. In this theology of worship, we are called to share in each other's sacrifices. As God's people of worship, we don't give up on each other, but we weep with those who suffer loss, and we laugh with those who are blessed. No one who you come across in this church or out will have it all together. No one's worship is acceptable in itself. And in the same way that Hezekiah and Jesus stand in the way before God and plead with him and walk among the crowds encouraging them, This is our job as a kingdom of priests, 
to go out from this place to walk among the crowds and plead with our Lord that he would be at work saving them, that he would be at work making his glory palpable among them, that he would be offering and calling them into his presence through us. Jesus is bigger than our captor. Jesus is better than our circumstance. And worship is smiling at the promise that he is making all things new. That's what worship is. And there's even more amazing news for us all this morning. Is that we were from the very beginning, we were engineered for overwhelming joy because God himself is the greatest worshiper. So the desire of the human heart to find value and delight in life, this is the fingerprint of God on our souls. If we could take worship and hold it in our hands and flip it over and look at the bottom, it would say, made in God. That's why worship is. Every human worships because that's what we've been designed to do, to reflect the great worshiping and joyful God. He enjoys, he delights in, he renews, and that's our treasured story. You and I are the image bearers of God, and whatever else that means, it at least means this. He hardwired that into us by design. He crafted us to joyfully reflect life-giving love into darkness. Our call is for the abundant joy of worship to shape everything in us and around us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let this be true of us. Amen. Would you pray with me? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, let us see and follow in the restoring work of Christ to bring unclean and inadequate sons and daughters to you. Let us feel that restoring work done in us by your spirit as he is conforming us to our true image and identity. May we preach and live restoration in every avenue of life. Give us hands and feet that do the restoring work of Christ and be pleased to bless our every effort that the name of Christ would be known and claimed among all the nations. In your name, for your glory, and that your bride might be beautiful, we pray. Amen.